And also, if any of you are interested, um, the whole series is online. You can go back to the work that we started on the Iliad. It's online in the, on the church web, website. You can go to St. Francis um, to watch and listen. And then under that, there are a couple of programs. Father's homilies are there and the whole course. And you can go back and listen to any work you want. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Divine Comedy. And you'll get a lot of these short or lyric poems that we've done. So let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, um, for the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass and your words to us. Um, all, all, the, all the readings in these opening weeks of Lent have been serious and stern. We're called to a law where um, you ask us to repent, take seriously the faults that we carry, strengthen us in our efforts um, to die into your love, to go into the desert, um, learn to die to ourselves, to put ourselves away. Father's homily was that self-love gets in the way, so we don't love you as much as we should. I ask this, for, hopefully, for all of us, that we learn to love you more than anything so that we can take a better love to what we do to each other. Father, um, help each of the women here be the daughters you gave them to be. Help each of the men to be the sons you gave them to be. Let it be so for all of us. Christ, um, um, help us to be your friend. You called us to be your friends, to love as you do. Help us to do that, um, to learn to accept a death, um, particularly for each other where our loves are deepest. Holy Spirit, help us to put ourselves away to love as you do with the Father and Son invisibly so that we offer ourselves not for what we get out of it um, but to love as you do. Um, help us to carry you the Trinity of Persons and you Christ in all that we do through the rest of this Lent. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, supernatural love. This is for the newcomers. Actually, is it's much for me, because I love this poem. I can't get through it without cracking up at the end. I hope I can hold it together here. Hmm? We're going to do it, Doc. We're doing a lot this morning, so here we go. A lot happened when you were gone. Don't leave again. Yeah, don't, don't, don't go away again. Everybody should know I'm not safe. I mean, I, if you don't know that right now, you, I'm not safe. It's important for her to be around. Okay, supernatural love. My father, I, we will print off some copies. So for those of you who are new, um, next week we'll have a couple copies for you so you can read the poem. And I'm gonna ask you to do this next week, because we won't read it again. Next week when you get a copy of the poem, take it home and read it aloud. Because I've been insisting on this from the beginning. You have to read poetry aloud. You have to hear it and experience it as as having music to it, so read it aloud, okay? But, so you don't have a copy this morning, you'll just have to really listen well here. Supernatural Love. Um, um, Gertrude Schneckenberg, I think her, she's an American poet, um, contemporary. This is very contemporary. 
supernatural love. My father at the dictionary stand touches the page to fully understand the lamp-lit answer, tilting in his hand his slowly scanning magnifying lens, a blurry glistening circle he suspends above the word carnation. Then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred, one finger on the miniature word, as if he touched a single key and heard a distant plucked infinitesimal string. This is in quotes because he hears a voice speaking to him. The obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe. I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye as though as through a lens ground for a butterfly, who peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and fathomed as this study's gloom where, as a scholar bends above a tomb to read what's buried there, he bends to pour over the Latin blossom. Tomb, buried. Two more illusions. Um, you know where they're taking us. To read what's buried there, he, he bends to pour over the Latin blossom. I am four. I spill my pins and needles on the floor, trying to stitch beloved, X by X. My dangerous bright needle's point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text. She becomes one with it, in flesh. I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to identify carnations as Christ's flowers, knowing I can give no explanation but because word roots blossom in speechless messages the way the thread behind my sampler does. We're following each X my awkward move, my needle through the word, whose root is love. He reads a pink variety of clove. Carnatio, the Latin meaning flesh, as if the bud's essential oils brush Christ's fragrance through the room. He's speaking in the fragrance. The iron fresh odor carnations have floats up to me, a drifted secret bitter ecstasy the stems squeak in my scissors. Child, it's me. The scissors are speaking. Child, it's me. He turns the page to clove and reads aloud. The clove, a spice, dried from a flower bud. Then twice, as if he hasn't understood, he reads from the French for clue, meaning a nail. He gazes motionless, meaning a nail. The incarnation blossoms flesh and nail. I twist my threads like stems into a knot and smooth beloved, but my needle caught within the threads. Thy blood so dearly bought, the needle speaking, everything in this poem is speaking. The needle strikes my finger to the bone, I lift my hand, it is myself I've sown, the flesh laid bare, the threads of blood my own. I lift my... <laughs> Get me through this stuff. God, sorry, sorry. Um, the needle strikes my finger to the bone. I lift my hand. It is myself. I've sewn the flesh laid bare. No, I've got to do this. Sorry, sorry. Um, I lift my hand in startled agony and call upon his name. God.
daddy, daddy. My father's hand touches the injury as lightly as he touched the page before where incarnation bloomed from roots that bore the flowers I called Christ when I was four. I don't know. Cut. Cut, is that a, I don't know why I cannot get through this poem. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I, when I read it at home, I'm fine. I don't know what happens with you guys here. Um, the poems we read are like this one. I mean, there's just lots. I mean, I'm thinking of some of the Gerard Manny Hopkins poems we read, The Wind Hover, and some other poems. There's just been a lot. They're little poems like this. This is, I mean, on the, on the surface, nothing happens. It's the sort of thing that passes our day all the time. We go through the day. How often do we see it the way we should? What's there? Going through Eliot, the, the, most, the most conspicuous thing we see is that this, what he calls this still point, this intersection between the timeless and time, is everywhere about us. Everywhere. It's there, always. Do we have eyes to see it? The poets are the ones helping us to see it. So that's how we begin. That's what we do. We, we do a, a short lyric and... Um, can you give that to... Um, I have got to do this, and I'm not going to make any comments on it because we're already way too late, but um, if all of you could take a little thing out, I'm just going to read the first section. We've not read the first section, this group, right? Because we did it, you know, we started here, right? Can you all take out little Gidding? I'm going to come back to this because we're too late. But what Eliot's doing here, a couple of things you should know. Little Gidding was a little um, cottage estate in England where a man named Nicholas Farrar and his family gathered to say prayers. It was a family home. Um, they took their faith. They were high Anglican. They took the Eucharist regularly, the Eucharist. It was central to their faith, and they said prayers through the days. Laud, you know, matins, laud, like, and vespers, and um, you know, through the through the days, because their faith was lived. That's what they did through the day. Charles the first, because they were royalists, they supported the crown. <coughs> Charles the first, when he was fl fleeing from Cromwell, came there. The house was destroyed, um, and you know, if you know your history, Charles um, was beheaded and the Puritans took over under Cromwell and, um, and the persecutions of Catholics that had gone on already, it continued to go on, so. Um, the Puritans took control. And so Eliot is setting his last quartet there. Now remember this because we saw this in Bert Norton. So what he's doing is taking us to a place um, that is there and no longer there. It exists like, for those of you who did the, the Snopster League, it's like that tree, remember, that Mink saw when he came out? Unaxed and unaxable. This tree that Mink 
sees, this man who's been in prison in the work we just studied, came out. And, and we experienced the sense that, and they could never take it away from him because it exists in memory. So Little Gideon is a place that's there and not there. And the midwinter, the midwinter spring moment is a moment that's there and not there. Because it's midwinter, it's winter. But Eliot's describing this moment when spring seems to come in, so he's, he's showing us a time out of time. So it's one more thing that seems to be there and not there. It's not a metaphor, it's not a symbol, it's real, it's real. Those of us who experience those moments, when you're in the middle of winter and you, you come out and open the door and you walk out and you say, it's like spring's already here. And you almost say it doesn't belong and it stands out all the more. That's not a figment of our imagination, it's not an idea, it's real, it's there. And Ellie is, is again asking, what's the source of this? Where does it come from, this thing that's there and not there? So over and over and over again, he keeps showing us from one perspective or another, one context or another, this thing, um, before, after. Behind it all is the sense, if you take Christ, another example, if you take Christ into you, and you're leaving church and you're on your way home, you think you're leaving church and on your way home, but as a, at the church's word, as a peregrine, a pilgrim, where are you? Where's your beginning and where's your end? If Christ is in you, is it, is it enough to say, I just left St. Francis and I'm on my way home? Where is the before and after? To have Christ in us, if, if he's in us and we're part of his kingdom, then it's not enough to say, I'm on my way home from St. Francis, I'm going to, you know, or I'm going to, something else is going on and language becomes inadequate. Was that clear? No. Yes. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> I don't know that I can make it any clearer. If we take Christ in us and the kingdom is within us, it's no longer adequate to say, I got in the car and I'm leaving St. Francis and I'm on the way home. Those words, I mean, those of you who've been doing the quartets know this, this dance. Um, 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 Don points and another day prepares for heat. I am here or there or elsewhere in my beginning. It began in my end. In my beginning is my end, in my end is my beginning. Where are we? In terms of, in terms of the world, we know exactly where we are. In terms of our relationship with Christ, if he's in us, where are we? It's no longer adequate to say. It's like the girl pricking her finger. It can just seem like a prick. But, but it may be more. So over and over, these poets have been showing us there's more going on. Can we see it? Can we feel it in our hearts? Okay? That's as much as I'm doing. Okay. The um, first section to Little Gidding. <coughs> what he does with Midwinter here, t to me, surpasses anything he does in the first three quartets. Because he not only shows us this moment in and out of time, this, this winter that asserts itself, I mean the spring in winter, um, but he connects it with emotion in the soul. So that what we're seeing in the, the emergence of this, this piercing of spring by winter 
actually goes on in the soul at the same time. Some invisible action is going on. So he describes, this is winter, the sun flashes on the ice and it's blinding. Something of that goes on inside the soul and he likens it to the Pentecostal spirit, to the Holy Spirit. Some motion inside of our soul that sometimes we don't feel. Okay? These are the sorts of things that he's doing. A little getting, part one. Midwinter spring is its own season, sempiternal through sudden, though sudden, towards sundown. Suspended in time between pole and tropic, when the short day is brightest with frost and fire. Notice how opposites come together. Ice, heat, frost, fire. And that's going to be likened. Remember we've talked, those of you who've been here for a while, we've talked about the grotesque in the soul. The grotesque is what happens when good and evil meet. There's no way. We, we want to do everything we can to make our lives nice and neat, tidy everything up as if we're clean, while inside the soul there's those grotesque conflict. When good and evil meet inside of us, it produces the grotesque. There's no way for that not to be twisted. Bring opposites together, and there's going to be a clash. And Eliot's going to be doing that here. He's, he's bringing opposites together to show that something is going on that's important for us to see. When the short day is brightest with frost and fire, the brief sun flames the ice on pond and ditches in windless cold that it is the heart's heat, reflecting in a watery mirror a glare that is blindness in the early afternoon. In glow more intense than blaze of branch or brazier stirs the dumb spirit, no wind, but Pentecostal fire in the dark time of the year. Between melting and freezing, the soul sap quivers. There is no earth smell or smell of living thing. This is the springtime, but not in time's covenant. Now the hedgerow is blanched for an hour with transitory blossom of snow, a bloom more sudden than that of summer, neither budding nor fading, not in the scheme of generation. Where is the summer, the unimaginable zero summer? If you came this way, taking the route you would be likely to take from the place you would be likely to come from, if you came this way in May time, you would find the hedges white again in May with voluptuary sweetness. It would be the same at the end of the journey if you came at night like a broken king. That's an allusion to Charles the I when, when the royalists were being defeated by the Puritans. If you came at night like a broken king, if you came by day not knowing what you came for, it would be the same. When you leave the rough road and turn behind the pigsty to the dull facade and the tombstone, and what you thought you came for is only a shell, a husk of meaning from which the purpose breaks, only when it's fulfilled, if at all. Either you have no purpose or the purpose is beyond the end you figured and is altered in fulfillment. This is really what I was talking about a minute ago. We think, we think we can get from here to there. We're so capable of doing it, particularly in our minds, because our minds are, you know, we get from here to here. Um, but something else is always going on beyond what we see. Or the purpose beyond the end you figured and is altered in fulfillment. There are other places which are also the world's end, some at the sea's jaws over a dark lake in a desert or a city. But this is the nearest in place and time now and in England. 
If you came this way taking any route starting from anywhere at any time or any season, it would always be the same. You would have to put off sense and notion. You are not here to verify, instruct yourself, or inform curiosity or carry report. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid. And prayer is more than an order of words, the conscious occupation of the praying mind, or the sound of the voice praying. And what the dead had no speech for when living, they can tell you being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. Here, the intersection of the timeless moment is England and nowhere, never and always. He's all, you all know what the apophatic is? Apophasis, apophatic knowledge. Um, it, it's knowledge about those things we, it's a way of trying to get to those things we don't know or can't know very well. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid and prayer is more than. We can all of us sit down and pray. And I'm assuming all of us know that sometimes our prayers aren't answered. The question is, are we praying in the right way? I mean, is it really prayer? Are we going through the motions, kneeling? Prayer is more than an order of words, the conscious occupation of the praying mind. It's more than these. Or the sound of the voice praying. What the dead had no speech for when living, they can tell you, being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. Here the intersection of the timeless moment is England and nowhere, ever and always. It's an interesting image. Do we listen to the dead? I'm saying that, I mean, we pray to the saints you know, as a community, we pray. Do we hear the language? Do we hear what they have to teach us from the dead? You know, if we go back to the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Aeneid, those of you who read those books, you know that no hero in those books can ever achieve the end towards which he's moving without going to the land of the dead, without visiting the dead, because the dead always have something to tell us. The question is, do we have the courage to hear it? Because it means very often living our lives differently. So Eliot's, I mean, he's speaking to that right here in these lines. Okay, I'm going to leave it because we've got to... Um, so ordinarily that should take much less time, but um, that's how we start and then to our books. So I just want to say a word about um, the Snopes trilogy. We just finished up the Faulkner's, um, what I think is probably his, well, the, the last work that he did next to um, The Reavers, which was his very last work on a comic. Those of you um, who've been here know that we we're, were planning to have a, uh, a potluck night and watch Faulkner's The Reaver. You thought you were all done with Faulkner. <laughs> we were going to watch The Reavers. It's a fun movie. It's a delightful, delightful movie. It's, it's, I don't know if I should tell you. You might not come. Steve McQueen's in it. And Boss in the town just bought a new Ford when Ford first came out. And the town's enamored. They just, it's an automobile and no street. I mean, there are horses in the, you know, in the, in the roads. There are no paved roads. There. It's a new car, but Boss has to go away for a funeral, and he leaves it in charge of Steve McQueen again, and, and this other guy, and they're not supposed to touch it. But it gives, it gives Steve McQueen a chance to go visit the woman he loves in this whorehouse in Memphis. And he has to take this young boy, whom, who Boss 
grandfather and mother and father left in Steve McQueen's care while they went off to this funeral. So it's about this young boy's growing into adulthood because he has to go to this whorehouse and, and they have to try to keep it a secret. So that, but what, hap what happens is wonderful. It's just, it's a delightful, delightful story. We were gonna have a potluck and watch that. So we still have to do that, but. Um, the last work of Faulkner's that we read was the, was the mansion, and I don't want to go over it except to say, I, I'm just repeating what we did last week. Faulkner's the only man that I know of in the modern world, the only modern that I know of, who shows an action of God actually in the work. And he does it by taking what has to be close to a dozen um, events that are obstacles to Minks getting out to complete his task, which is to kill Phlegm, this evil man, this evil man. Those are not abstractions. Every one of those events is a discrete, isolated episode. Every one of them is not related to another. They're all, in, in terms of circumstance and meaning, they're completely different. And yet in every case, what seems to be an obstacle um, vanishes. It's like a door that was closed opening. And I've been describing it as the Red Sea party. It's just coincidence after coincidence after. When you, when you add up all the coincidences, you can't say chance anymore. There's too many of them. When you have things recurring like that, that, form, that make clear that there's a purpose, they're, they're going someplace, there there's, is at work a purpose and an intelligence. And in so many of those episodes, it, it involves God, either directly or indirectly. So, and what, what sets all of this in motion is this change that takes place in Mink when he begins to see God differently. You all remember it because he begins to listen for the first time in his life and he waits. It's a man who undergoes a fundamental change in his whole way of being. When that happens, things begin to happen. And he's a man who's used to depending on himself. So when he learns to wait and listen, all these doors begin to open. And what we see in the, so it's not like the Iliad, where we get images of gods, you know, the, the gods have an image and they're there, they're visible. In Milton's Paradise Lost, Milton would give us an image of God. I, I think that's the biggest mistake in literature, because the God that he presents is, a, to me, an awful God, just an awful, awful God. Dante doesn't do that. Dante will give us images of Christ when he gets in the paradise, but they'll always be fleeting. Dante's wiser. Faulkner doesn't give us an image. What he does is give us these events, and all of them take the same form. At some point, you have to go, holy cow, what's happening? And it helps Mink complete his task, and, and, um, and with Linda's help, he finally does it. And it raised all sorts of questions last week. How do we... How do we look at Mink? I don't want to raise that again. I love him. I think he's, he's a good man. He, I mean, he does. He, we have to be careful of how we judge people. In his own mind, what he's doing is just. He lives by this primitive blood. What's that called? The the blood price. The say again, doc. Blood price. Blood price. Yeah, the blood price. That ancient sense of if somebody in your family does something, you have to. You have to pick it up and do something. If somebody kills somebody in your family, you have to kill that. I mean, it's it's a primitive sense of justice. We live in what we we live in what we think is, is God. We live in what we think is a civilized world, 
and we don't do those bad things anymore. We just have a million abortions and all the rest of it hidden. So anyway, Mink completes it, and we know that um, he does it with Linda's help, and we also learn that Linda has been involved in the planning of it all along. And it opens up all sorts of dark questions about a woman. Um, Mink is not calculated. He, he, if he meets a problem, he just goes on. He just is determined to get there. Linda is a calculating person. We know that from a number of things. So what we're left with at the end is Flem Snopes, who is this evil man that nobody's been able to bring down, is finally brought down. And Faulkner ends that trilogy. So um, it's amazing for the way in which he, he is able to show God at work in the world in a way that I'm not aware any other writer has done. So that's our work with him. Okay, till we have faces. Sorry for the late start. We may go four weeks after all. <laughs> I don't know what else. Um, um, a couple of background things that everybody should know. Lewis was born in 1898. He died in 1963. He's really a contemporary. He, he was alive in our age. So He was baptized in the Irish National Church. He had a dog named um, Jacksey. When that dog died, he was so fond of it that he named himself Jack. And forever after, people who knew him called him Jack. That's the name he, his friends called him. He loved um, animals. He loved Beatrice Potter, those of you who've grown up with her stories. I mean, he really was fond of this sense of animals talking. That there was a story to animals. He already had a wonderful sense of um, something strange in the world that the empirical mind couldn't see. And he loved the northern myths, the Norse myths. Um, he, if, I, I don't know them myself. I've read some of them, but I, I don't know them the way he would have. He grew up on them, so he knew them well. Um, he loved them because there's a sense of dread and fear and wonder. And those were formative influences in his life. The sense that there's something more there that can be dreadful. You know, if, if those of you who've read the book, you know that um, Oriwal is terrified of Ungut. Ungut represents everything that's dreadful about the holy. It's frightening. The smells of the sacrifices, everything about holiness terrifies her. That's so in keeping with this character, the numinous, the awful, that, that, that God has that presence. The modern world tends to make Christ this nice guy. Those of you who've been here long, you know, certainly since the uh, Moby Dick, one of the concerns that we've been looking at, one of, one of Melville's criticisms of 19th century Christianity in its Protestant form, and I, and I think in its Catholic, I mean, you've been hearing me say that, is without the sacraments, Christianity tends to decline into a moral code. Take the sacraments in a way, and you've got a moral code. You tend to make that and your respectability a sign of your election if you're dignified and respectable and responsible in the world. Holiness doesn't enter the picture. And we saw that, we saw that in spades in Faulkner's The Town, the middle book of the trilogy, because everybody in that, all the Christians, um, enable, they all cover up the sin because they're more concerned about keeping up public appearances than they are for something deeper. So we've been aware of a, a failure in Christianity 
that it's failing to live up to its, to its cross. I've said before that I think the veil has fallen over Christianity that Paul said fell over the Jews. Those are Paul's words, that we don't live our faith. Um, Lewis had this strong sense of the importance of dread and the awful and the awe, the wonderful. At an early age, he turned away from Christianity, <laughs> and in his writing, he said he was angry at God because he didn't exist. <laughs> That's a wonderful way of putting it. You know, it's like, really, it is. I mean, this boy grew up on wonders. At some point, he turns away from his faith because there seems to be more evidence that he's not there, and he wants him to exist. I'm angry because he doesn't exist. I hope you hear that. That's a boy that wants a God and finds no evidence of it around him. So at 15, he was agnostic. He, um, he was in, involved in the First World War and got wounded. And he and one of his bunk mates, a guy named Patty Moore, made vows to each other. If either one of them died, they would take care of their surviving families. Patty died and left a mother. When Lewis got out of the army, he lived with her and took care of her. And we get, I, there's different reports on her. Some, some um, describe her as being this overbearing woman that always kept him busy doing chores. And I think it was like C.S. Lewis to do that. I mean, he was that kind of man to, to sort of be willing to do that. There are also, um, I think, some more recent discoveries suggesting that the two of them had a sexual relationship. I think she was 20, 30 years older than he was. They lived together. I think her daughter even gave support to that, that the two might have been intimate. Anyway, they had a close relationship for a long time. Um, he became a teacher at Oxford in Magdalen College there. Um, and um, in 1929, because of the influence of some of the, his colleagues, he converted to theism, which was a huge move for him. He began to believe in God again. And then eventually, he converted back to Christianity. In 1931, he converted. Tolkien <coughs> had um, a huge influence on that conversion. And there was another guy, I can't remember his name. Um, he did the translation of the Chaucer. Um, he, he translated Chaucer's old, old English into contemporary English. I can't remember. Coghill. Neville, I can't remember, I can't remember his name. Both of them had a, a powerful influence, and both of them were Catholic. Um, when Lewis converted, he converted to Ang the Anglican Church. Tolkien was really disappointed. Um, he, re he really hoped that he would become Catholic. He didn't. And from that point on, you know, I mean, almost all of you know, he became one of the great apologists of the 20th century. The, the really great thing, um, C.S. Lewis, I read an article by Buckley, William Buckley, once <coughs> when I had left the Greek Orthodox Church, and I knew, well, no, the Greek Church was behind me. I didn't even think about going back then, but I, I, I so admired Bill Buckley and knew he was Catholic. He recommended C.S. Lewis's um, Abolition of Man. It's a really short book. Um, it, I think it's one of his best. I would recommend everybody read this book. It, 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 Buckley's comment on these two men, C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton, wrote these two books and they illustrate how, how great the resources of rationality are in Christianity. This is a time during the 60s and 70s when you know that all the people were turning towards Eastern religions. 
away from the faith. The young people were turning away. And Buckley said, read these two and you'll see the resources of rationality. That really took a hold in me. I, Suzanne and I met at Berkeley. I left the Greek Orthodox Church. At Berkeley, I became aware that there's this, all of this rationality, most of it was anti-Christian, but it was still reasonable. I mean, it's the, the mind working. When I read these two men, I was so taken by them because it showed me Christianity is just not a faith. It's got these profound resources of reason in it. And Ch Lewis was not as important to me. G.K. Chesterton, to me, is one of the most extraordinary figures of the modern world. Chesterton brought me into the church. When I read Orthodoxy, that book took me. I mean, that, that book brought me into the church. I was amazed that anybody could do that with reason. And that was before he converted. He was already on his way, I think, to the Catholic Church. So, Lewis underwent a conversion, returned to the church, and became one of the 20th century's great defenders of the faith. Um, he's known for apologetic works like Problem of Pain, um, Mere Christianity, um, Abolition of Man, things like that. I think he's most popularly known for the Narnia books. And what's sad to me is if you read the Narnia books and read Two and a Half Faces, Two and a Half Faces makes Narnia look silly. Two and a Half Faces is by far the, the, the most, it's one of the most extraordinary books I think of the 20th century. I think when you read this book and finally put it down, you won't forget it. You, you will carry it in you for the rest of your life. And, and I hope you'll want to reread it again. It's just an extraordinary book. It, it is by far his deepest expression of the wisdom that he came to in his faith. And what he does with reason in the book is extraordinary to me. You can't read it without feeling arguments everywhere. The way people use their mind. I mean, it, it makes me aware all the time, as I told you, it's like I can't read a page without being convicted. There's almost not a page in which somebody's doing something in the way that they use reason that casts a light on it. And as you move through the book, you're going to find almost every one of those reasons given for things is going to be shattered. It's going to fall away. Um, and if, it, if, if that's true, then at some point you're going to have to say, how am I using my reason myself? What am I doing with it? What am I not seeing? What do I think I see when I'm not seeing it? <coughs> because my, my mind is getting in the way of something deeper in my heart. It's one of the extraordinary things he does in the story. Um, he met Joy Davidman, a young woman who was raised Jewish and converted to Christianity. I think she, the man that she married, I think, was also Jewish. They both converted. But something happened. I think he, he um, um, had drinking problems. And he also got turned in some way to spiritualist sorts of things that must have been a service. Um, fringe religious sorts of things. It wasn't an orthodox faith. She began corresponding with Lewis and fell in love with him and divorced her husband and um, came to England. And the two um, became close. They had a civil marriage. Some people thought, I think, Lewis did it um, out of pity to take care of her. I, it's hard for me to see him doing that. And then a couple of years later, they had a church wedding. Most of their friends frowned on it because she was divorced. Um, but he loved her, and, um, and I think in some ways she changed his life. And she, she was um, intellectually very competent, 
Um, there's this, I didn't bring it up, I have to bring it, there's this wonderful quote, I, it may be in A Grief Observed, if you know that work, that's the work that he wrote after Joy died, um, where he says, she was my wife, my mother, my daughter, I mean, she is everything to him, my wife, my daughter, my mother, most husbands would say, stop mothering me, or grow up, but for a man to say, she was my daughter, my wife, my mother, my teacher, my, my, my pupil, I mean, they had that relationship where it's as if they shared everything with each other and deepened in their love. To a point that when she got, came down with cancer and died, I think a year later, he wrote A Grief Observed, which is one of his last works. Um, he also was a part of a group that formed in order specifically with the purpose of writing apologetics in fiction. It was called the Inkling Group. Um, Tolkien was in this, this guy whose name, I, Coghill? No. Is that him? Do you have the, is that, do you have the name? Is Neville Coghill. Neville Coghill. Yeah, that's he, what I thought. Yeah. translated. Eddie? Good. Thank you. Thank you. He, Tolkien, um, Charles Williams, Who's, who wrote a number of really important <laughs> novels. Sometimes Dorothy Sayers was in that group. Interesting thing, though, I want to just mention this before we go. What I really want to leave you with, with this sense, at the same time that this was happening, a group was forming in the South called the Fugitives. Alan Tate, John Crow Ransom, Donald Davidson, and other groups. So interesting thing, if you go back to, um, if you go back to, we talked about this when we did the Moby Dick. If you go back to 19th century British literature, you'll find nothing religious. You won't find it in Jane Austen. The closest she gets is Manfield Park, and I believe that Jane Austen had this longing for the, this, the kind of life in Little Gidding, because what happens in Mansfield Park is that this, they take an excursion and go to this old place that this band is going to renovate. The way it was was set up for a family to do prayer. There was a chapel. He's going to take that all away. So she looks back in a longing spirit. But God doesn't enter into her, her world. Dickens, Thackeray, um, Trollope, George Eliot. When, you, when Dickens treats religion, I'm thinking of a story like um, Tale of Two Cities. One of the characters in that story keeps making fun of his wife because she says, he said she keeps flopping down for prayer. She keeps flopping down for prayer. You can hear Dickens doing that sort of thing. The idea that anybody would pray, or pray the rosary, or would be laughable. It would be un undignified in that Protestant respectable world. You know what's going on in America. In America, we've got this crisis. We talked about it. Um, Scarlet Letter and Moby Dick. And we're watching a moral decline. That's the crisis of 19th century. So I want you all to keep that in mind. 19th century marks a crisis. Two worldviews come into collision, a biblical and a scientific way of reading the world. We're still in that crisis. Um, um, books are being written on both sides, but there's a real divide, certainly in the popular mind. In the midst of that crisis in 20th century, this group emerges called the Inkling, and they have as their purpose writing these works. They're apologists. Charles, Dick, or I mean, uh, Charles Williams wrote all these novels about the, the principle of co-inherence, of somebody, in a, somebody carrying on the work of Christ by offering himself as a sacrifice for another. One of the great writers of the 20th century. 
G.K. Chesterton, Dorothy Sayers, Owen Barfield, Tolkien, Lewis. So in mid-19th century, you've got the Tractarian movement, John Henry Newman, um, Gerard Manley Hopkins, all these men who were Protestant convert. And what you see a generation later is the fruit of this change that began to take place, where all these men begin to suddenly take religion seriously and get explicit about it when it didn't happen in the 19th century. Same thing happens in America. You, 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 in a, except we talked about America's different, it doesn't have quite the same sense of respectability. There's this breaking Hawthorne, Melville, in our world, Faulkner. So in the midst of these world changes, there are these little circles of people who've been carrying on this work, dedicated Christians, great writers, great apologists. C.S. Lewis is one of them. And, and his greatest book, I think, his greatest piece of fiction is Till We Have Faces. You mentioned Austin, Dickens, and Eliot. George Eliot, yeah. George Eliot. Uh, was that indicative of their real life that they wrote about? Yes. From what we know of their lives, that, I mean, they're pretty much respectable people. And they, um, Jane Austen was Methodist. I mean, they would have gone to church. They would have been a part of a respectable world. I don't think Elliot was a practicing Christian. I, I think she was already. In some ways, Elliot represents a, a real shift to the modern world where Christianity no longer informs what they do. Trollope wrote, Trollope wrote all these books on the, what's called the Barchester Towers series. They're all parodies of ecclesiastical life, but they're all parodies that just they're comical treatments of, of an ecclesial world that's comic. There's nothing holy, there's nothing sacred. That world is gone. The Romantics all look back to the, media, to the Middle Ages. They look back with, with some sense that something's gone. All the Romantic poets, they loved abbeys and haunted places and cathedrals. But the religion itself, there was no place for it. If I do Milton this next year, Milton's gonna be a real eye-opener because you, you're going to see something strange happening in the modern Protestant mind with Milton. The English world loved Milton. After Milton, the English people have a spokesman, and Milton's that spokesman. Um, okay, that's just by way of background. Um, these two girl, these two groups on both sides of the um, the ocean, the Inklings in England, and the and it's interesting, the fugitives in the south, not the north, in the south, communal, fundamentalist, Protestant, Christian, committed. The one exception, Alan Tate converted to Catholicism. That represented a real break from that group, but but this strong sense of of uh, being committed to holding on to the independence of the South when the South had lost the war. And all the, all the, all the signs showed that the North was taking over. We've, that, I mean, that was the work we've done on Faulkner, that the South had lost its way. It, 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 its values were gone. It was on the, on, the, on the edge of a new world. That's where we left Faulkner. That brings us to where we are today, I guess. Till we have faces. One of the beauties of doing this work is this. In all the works that we've read, our, our, our principle, what we've been 
experiencing is Christ at work in the world. Um, we know that he's been at work inside of people, but it seems to me if, we, if we're aware of, of these stories, he's at work some way in the world. Something's happening. It's certainly true in the, in the Snopes, um, in the mansion. God is at work in the world when all these things open up. We know that he's working through Mink, and we know Mink underwent a conversion, but we don't, we don't, we're not aware of something going on. That changes in this book, radically changes. Because in Two We Have Faces, we go into the soul of a woman, and as we'll learn as we go along, we begin to see God is at work in, in her. And we won't see how, I'm not going to give things away, we're not going to see how till the end. Because what she does for the most part is do everything she can to run away from him. She puts on a mask, she goes to work, and it's during that period, by the way, when she puts on a mask that she accomplishes all these great things. She's very successful, but something's happening inwardly, and she's absolutely out of touch with it. So one of the beautiful things about this work is that we're actually entering into the psyche of a woman. Um, sorry? No, 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 Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, some of the major themes. I'm leaving this as a question mark. I'm not going to be, we, wait, we may get to this today. We're going to be late today. I'm going to, means we're going to, that's okay. We'll pick it up. I don't want to identify the main action. Those of you who have not been here before, you, um, just a word. Aristotle says um, that the, the plot is the soul of tragedy. And we could mean of any work of literature. It could be comedy. It doesn't matter. The plot is its soul. And the plot is an imitation of an action. The plot is the, is the, is the unity of the events that make it up. It's the sequence. This happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. We can identify them. They're all the events. He said that plot, those incidences, imitate an action. What he's talking about is that those visible incidences imitate, reveal an invisible interior movement. So that what's going on outwardly corresponds to something going on inwardly that we can't see. So if we read Othello, we say, this happens with Othello, this, 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 this. What we know at the end of the book is something happened to him inwardly, and the only way that we can know it is by looking at what happens after it. We all know that from our lives, right? We're, we're, not, ange we're not angels, we're not angelic. The only way we can get to know ourselves is by looking at what we do physically. Our actions give us away all the time. So. One of the more important ideas for our work is this notion of an action, a movement, both visible and invisible, okay? Um, the book, the book um, is written, this is one of its actions, one of its principal actions. The book is written as a complaint against the gods. We know from the beginning that Oreo is writing this down as a complaint, and we know two things. One is, um, that the gods have wronged her, and she wants to take this case against them. So there's a, a courtroom um, juridical aspect. She wants to conceive of it, and, that, um, and we will see at the end, she'll actually appear in a court setting. So there's a juridical aspect. There's a, a wrong has been done to her. The gods have done something wrong. So in one sense, the, 
the question that she's raising is this. It's that age-old question. Why do the gods, why do the gods let um, good things happen to bad people? And why do they let bad things happen to good people? Did I get that right? Um, why do good people suffer? Why do the gods do that? There's something un there seems to be something unjust. So this is a variation on that old, it's the theme of Job. Why, why do I have to suffer all these things, God? We could have done Job before this and it would have been really appropriate. So she's writing this complaint and if you know anything, um, there's some compelling evidence. Often she says, in trying to be truthful, I mean to her credit, I'm saying this to her credit, she very often shows she's trying to be fair. You know, it's not like she's willfully skewing things. We have to take a serious look at that, but often she's trying to be fair. The second thing is that the, this complaint is written for somebody from the Greek lands. And if you've read the book, you know that what that means, because that's where Fox comes from. It means the rationalist. So in one sense, this book is prophetic in the sense it's written for a modern rationalist. Now let me take a second on that because I, um, a while ago when I said C.S. Lewis is one of the um, great apologists for the 20th century, Lewis knew how to argue. You couldn't come out of Oxford or Cambridge without engaging in debate. You had to learn to argue. And if you know him, you know how well he uses reason. Lewis, I think Lewis, part of Lewis's fame in the 20th century rests on the fact that he was an academic. And that's not a small thing. Chesterton was not. Chesterton was a journalist. Lewis was an academic, so he talked to academics. He argued. Most people in academia hated him because the position he took was so contrary to the modern academic mind, which is liberal, left-leaning, secularist. There's no God in it. Lewis's attitude towards men and women was that he believed that the, the man was the principal, the, the head of a family. The, um, that's absolutely alien to a modern mindset. It's, um, I don't think he had um, much sympathy with a feminist. But he wrote this book, and he wrote this book on Oriole, a woman. We, um, there's so much to see in this, but anyway, his greatness rests on the fact that he was a great debater, and he was an academic. He could argue. He knew how to argue well. Um, Oriole's making a case against the gods, and she's writing it for a Greek. In terms of the book, that means like Fox, and if you read, you know Fox is a Greek, a rationalist. Fox doubts the gods. He thinks they're stories of poets. He calls, he calls them the lies of poets. Those are his words. You have to be careful of poets, because poets seem to often tell us lies. Um, so it's important to keep that in mind. Oriole's got a complaint. The gods have mistreated her. She wants those who know, those who know, to see that. She's letting them be her judge. So it's, it's appealing to a modern rationalist. I would think that any modern intellectual who, who picked up the, this book would feel at home until two-thirds of the way through it. <laughs> and I don't know that he would finish the book then. <laughs> great thing, reason and belief. Everywhere in this book, particularly when Fox comes into it, we, we keep hearing arguments being given by the priest, by the king, by Fox, by Bardia. And over and over again, it's held off intention against belief, religious practices.
You know from the story that there are two principal settings, the city of Gloam and Ungod, the holy place by the mountain. That mountain is going to be important. Think about Mount Dante's mountain in Purgatory, the importance of mountain, um, um, Mount Carmel. Um, but the, it's, it's a major motif in, in spiritualist writing. Um, who's Don, Tom, uh, Merton? Seven-story mountain, Thomas Merton uses the mountain as um, the principal image. Those of you who've been here for a while remember the city comes into existence when God sends Cain in exile. This is so important for our understanding of literature. God kills Abel, I mean, Cain kills Abel, God sends Cain into exile. Cain's first son, Enoch, is the founder of the first city. So the meaning of the city is the city comes into an existence in its attempt to live without God. That's the nature of the city. It's an attempt to be self-sufficient, to live by itself. And we see that here. All of the characters have that same kind of pride, that sense of self-sufficiency. At one point, I'll, I'll, I will come to the lines. At one point, I think it's Fox who says something about the city. He says, and yet, it's outside the city that all the food comes. You have to go outside for nourishment. The city's not sufficient. And you know what happens in the city. The city practically dies because the plagues come. And the city's almost destroyed until they make the sacrifice. So the effort for the city to be self-sufficient fails. Um, and he says, outside the city is where all the food comes from and where all the dangers lie. Go outside the city and you have to face uncertainties and mystery. So this theme of the tension between reason and belief and the city and the holy place, they're, they're constant through the whole book. Education, um, how much of the book is about the education that Fox brings to the palace? You know that the king brings him there because he's expecting a male heir, and when he doesn't get it, he says, practice on them, these witches, um, these women, because they're not worth anything else. Um, and beauty, um, it, it's such an important thing. The book is primarily about faces, about beauty. You know that from the beginning. Oriole is different because she's a woman and she learns early on that she's ugly. Um, the, the father has nothing but scorn. And, and, and after the girl is born, when he wanted a boy heir, he says, faces, 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 faces. And what's he got on his mind is girls' faces. He wants to do everything he can to get rid of girls because the kingdom can't go on in health in his mind without a male heir. So the beauty of a face, till we have faces. I want just keep in mind two things. There are those passages. Um, oh God. There are those passages from Paul. Remember, I think it's in Corinthians, one Corinthians. I'm not, where he says, um, "We see in a glass darkly, um, but we will, but we will see face to face. It will be as a light. Then we will see things as they are when we're face to face." So this whole notion of two we have faces um, is, is so much a part of understanding Oriol herself because you know that she's ugly and you know that if you've read along you know that she will put on a mask. The other biblical passage to remember is that it's another passage from Paul where he says, um, Christ will appear 
and we will know him for we will see we will see him as he is so in some sense Christ will appear to us only when only when we're like him and we see him as he is then we will be who we were meant to be so our face and I'm, I'm trusting that everybody will know, however ugly we are in this world, in whatever way we're lacking, or that somebody else is better than us, that won't be the case there. But what, whatever will take place in that moment will be an experience of beauty with beauty, made in Christ's image, Christ. So this notion of two we have faces is really important, and I think it's particularly important for the theme of woman here that I, I think I want to... Oh, for, I'll get to it in a minute. The, the theme of sickness, over and over and over again, people get sick, and they do it, and it's so, it's, it's interesting, the sickness always corresponds to a spiritual crisis. That, in Jane Austen, if you're a reader of Jane Austen, nobody ever gets sick in a world unless it's in the middle of a crisis, because she knows when there's an emotional upheaval, when there's some great turbulence, when there's a spiritual change or a conversion, something that's grotesque, the soul is in conflict, good and evil are meeting. That grotesque moment, the world wants to run away from it. Christians should be embraced. That's a moment of the cross. cross. Christ hanging on a cross is not grotesque. It's the most grotesque thing in the world. And it, there's no other way to look at it except it's the most beautiful thing in the world. That's Oedipus when he had his eyes blinded. Lots of people look at that as the grotesque. I look, it's, to me, it's one of the most perfect images of the grotesque. It's almost one of the most perfect images of a spiritual beauty you can find in a man in all of literature. Look at Oedipus before that. Look at him then. Spiritually, he's better than anybody in that book at that moment. He, he sees himself as he truly is. His eyes are gouged out. He's an extraordinary person. Without, we need a notion of the grotesque. In a pure world, we want to clean everything up, as if that's a sign of how good we are. So this notion of beauty is really important in the sickness, the fact that people get sick in moments of crisis. It was true for Fox, it's true for Oriole when um, Psyche is taken from her, remember? Psyche, when she goes out and heals, um, she gets ill and, um, and then she becomes the cursed. She has to be nursed back to health. So you, you know, we live in a world of such divisions, dichotomies, spiritual, physical, if we don't get those two worlds together, we're always in a little bit of trouble. I mean, doctors are often going to misdiagnose us. They, how many doctors see into the soul very well? I mean, I would say not many see very well at all. So those are some of the major themes. Um, I'm going to add some as we go along, and they're going to get deeper. But those are some of the things to keep in mind. I want to just do one more thing, and then I just... Um, sorry? I guess where I'm going... Where I'm going. <laughs> Are you giving me one of those looks? Oh, that's where I'm going. Any, I've got one thing to, but let me stop here for a second. Any questions about any of this? I want to go to something really central to this book, but and and then take a look at some passages. But before I do any. Um, anything before we start, or before I go to this last thing? Have you all started? Have you read it? Mm -hmm. Haven't read it yet. Have, have you read? Have you read the whole thing? No. 
No? Yeah. It's easy to read. I just got it. Those of you who have done Faulkner, just, just, yeah, just, just, just appreciate how much, how much Faulkner has taught you how to read. No matter what you do, it, it's going to be a snap. Oh, yes. It's a delight. What? It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last, last thing. I don't quite know how to get to this, but when I picked this book, I, I told you I haven't read it in 20 years. Um, sometime shortly after that, when I was talking with Suzanne about it, she said she cried. Um, I, I was so glad for her, so glad. She's read it several times. She, this is the first time she cried. I mean, I'm, I told you, reading it this time, it was hard for me not to feel convicted, page after page after page after page. It's an extraordinary story. It's a story about a young woman. And it was, I, for some reason, I felt it with a greater depth now, older man, maybe, you know, suffering to the kids. I'm, I'm our own, I'm not quite sure. It was hard for me to feel at this time, experience, read it, without experiencing, um, I mean, I always identified with, I tend, you know that I, I've said this to everybody in the class, if we don't learn to read so that we identify with every character in our work, then we're not reading well. Because too often the tendency is that we want to read for the good characters and identify with them and not look at the bad. If we do that, there's something, I believe there's something wrong in our lives because it means we're not looking at bad things in ourselves. So. One of the values of literature is that it teaches us to see ourselves if we read well. Um, Oriole's a woman, and it's hard, it's hard to read this without feeling the plight of a woman. And let me elaborate on that for a second. Those of you who have been here, whether you agree with me or not, know that one of the paradigms of the world as I understand it is the, the, the superior physical strength of men, generally. That isn't to say there aren't some women who couldn't beat men to a pulp. There are. But as a class, as a class, men are physically stronger than women. As a class, women have a beauty whose power over men makes physical strength look childish. You can disagree with me, but I believe that. The power that women have over men because of their beauty is extraordinary. The sexual power particularly. That was one of Homer's great insights, those of you who did the Iliad and the Odyssey. Circe has Odysseus on her island for eight years of the nine and a half that he's gone. Circe has him for a year. The, the, the sexual the, 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 the power that a woman has over a man is extraordinary. Um, so put those two things together and you see a, a fundamental paradigm. Um, in the Iliad, men treat women as objects. Women are the highest form of booty. They fight a war to collect all this booty. At the height of them is women, and at the height of all of them is Helen. They're fighting the war over her. Can, can anything make clear how important a woman is in the sexual relationships between men and women? That war is being fought over her. She's the most beautiful, the woman the face that lost a thousand tips. You can say that's just rhetoric. I'd say, take a look at it, turn on the TV. You can't look at 10 advertisements without seeing sexual women 
next to them. Why? The subliminal effect of that will sell. Everybody knows that. But it gets covered up. That's how great it is. Um, so um, physical strength, that kind of masculine nobility, if men get, if men get defeated, they are much more likely to be dis, that is, men are supposed to be courageous. Courageous, to be a man. If men get defeated, their response is to be discouraged. The courage vanishes. C.S. Lewis says in this book, when Fox is, I think it's Fox talking to Oriole, men are harder, women are tougher. I believe that. I don't have a question. I've already told you, if any of you has a room, <laughs> Suzanne, Suzanne will hold out on the kids infinitely longer than I will. Um, um, so beauty's not a small thing, and particularly in our world. Go through all the, all the lines in the grocery stores and the tabloids are nothing but, I mean, to me it's sad. It just, it's always been a, I just, I hate what it does to women. I cannot tell you how much I hate it. I hate it. Um, if you, happen to be a, if you happen to be a boy and grow up winkling or asthmatic or you know, you're not as tough, watch Texas men raise their fathers. It bothers me. Sons. Sons. Or sons. You know, they've all got to grow up to be studs. And the, the girls have to grow up princesses. God, it shakes me. It just shakes me to my core. What that does to a boy and a girl. Um, if you're a boy and you're weakly, you grow up. What do you do? I mean, what, what are the kinds of comparisons you make with other boys who can accomplish all these things, be a great basketball player? The two dominant powers in America that I look are the celebrity culture and the sports culture. They just dominate the psyche. You have to be really great athletically or you have to be a star. That's a little bit scary to me. That is, you have to be beautiful or handsome or, you know, or you can win. Um, if you're a girl and you grow up and you're ugly, and you're not as attractive as another girl. What does that do to a young woman? Particularly if that's the culture around her, and particularly if that's the way her parents look at things. Oreo grows up, she has no sense of her ugliness early on, but she's aware of, of Redival's golden curls. Because remember, the book begins with her mother dying, and she has to have her hair sheared. She sees these golden, so without even making any critical comparison, the um, against herself, implicitly that she's aware her sister has these beautiful golden curls. Her father will make it clear scene after scene after scene that she should hide her face. So she, and, and a couple of things need to be said here. She's growing up in a male world. It's a male-dominated world. Men have the power. And not only does he have the power as a king, we know that that power is supported because it's associated with a royal line that goes back to the gods. Um, Lewis is far away from this, but we know from what, all that happened in the Renaissance with, with um, Henry VIII. In the 17th century, there was this powerful sense of the divine, the divine right of kings. Where does it come from? The Bible. The Jews had God until they reached a point where they said, we want to be like other nations. I mean, Father, I laugh. I mean, I, I enjoy those moments with Father because it's been one of the paradigm moments when I, began, when I first realized that 50 years ago. Who do they ask for? I mean, who do they get? Saul. A king. 
and, and, and everything that's prophesied happens, that king will take their food, their chariots, their wives, their, you know, and it has a divine sanction. So when Henry makes his move against the Catholic Church and the Pope, <coughs> in his own mind, he thinks he has some sanction to it. Shakespeare's plays are full of this notion. So the world that she grows up in is not just one associated with male power, and back to that paradigm again, male power. It's a male power that has the support of the gods. That's why the, uh, the priest and the king so often collaborate in this book. They're constantly getting together. They have to, to overcome that tension between them. Remember in the ancient world when we talked about this, I've always associated wisdom um, with the woman. Homer does. Athene is the goddess of wisdom. Why is wisdom feminine in the Greek mind? We're, by the way, we're going to be back in the Greek world here. Just so I'm going to talk about the, the various myths, the Persephone myth and other myths that are the psyche Cupid myth. There's something so important in the poetry, as poetry, that's going on here. So we're going to go back to that. But why is wisdom feminine in the ancient world? Athena was the goddess of wisdom. Remember, she, she, she didn't have the kind of birth that other goddesses or gods had. She came out of Zeus's mind intact, out of his mind. And she was the only goddess in the whole pantheon that was dual in nature. In the Iliad, when the, when the gods finally go back in the war and they fight each other, Athena takes on Ares and Aphrodite. Ares is the god of war. Aphrodite is the god of beauty or Eros. That is, Athena takes on the passions for war, for sex. Why, why feminine? Why is wisdom feminine? Are you asking? Yeah. I mean, because it's counter to power. You know, like you said, what does a boy do when he's weak and he's, and the first thing that came to my mind, well, if you can't play football, coach it. You know, like, be smarter yeah. than everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, I, so I believe. power is male. Yeah. Must be. yeah, 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 yes. Yeah, I, I'm not sure, yes, I don't want, yes. The, what I wanted to get to, at least for myself, is because wisdom is at the mercy of power in the world. I put another, how substantial, how strong is, how loved is wisdom in the world? In the world. If, if men had to choose, men and women, women are in the workforce today. If a man and woman had to choose between power or wisdom today, what would, the great, what would most of them choose? Um, the, the great defining equation in the modern world, knowledge equals power. That's why people love it. Not for knowledge for its own sake, because it gives them power. Wisdom? Look, look at the equation. Knowledge <coughs> equals power. Knowledge isn't love for its own sake. It's not because it gives you control over things. That's the premise of the modern world. Wisdom is always vulnerable. It's always at risk. It's, in some sense, it's powerless. It has to learn to work. I mean, along the lines of what you're saying, Cecilia. It's in me. And, and look at the form that it takes in the ancient world. It's dual. Athena's a fighter and a weaver. She weaves things together. So, um, 
where was I going? Somebody help me. The plight of, the plight of yeah, thanks. We're watching, when, when, the, when the story starts, we're in the heart of a young woman who immediately begins to feel there's something not good about her. Everything that happens. Um, when the story takes off, Fox is brought into the kingdom, you remember, to teach the heir, the male. When another daughter comes, the king is outraged. He becomes so outraged, he kills that, that slave who trips and drops the wine. He kills him, just in a rage. He gets furious at, at his daughters again, and he sends Fox off. Psyche gets, I mean, sorry, Oriole gets very attached to Fox. She loves him. He's a tutor. He shows her wisdom. Redival is flighty as a girl. She, um, she has sex with Taryn. He's going to be castrated and sent off, um, and, and then things begin to, to complicate. But we know increasingly she becomes more and more self-conscious because she, she becomes more and more aware that she's ugly. When they, I think when, they, when, when the question comes up about the, about the um, marriage and Fox has to teach the girls how to sing those um, hymnal songs in Greek, um, there's a question about whether or not to put on a mask, and the king says, of course, and he makes some illusion. It's not just to put on a mask because it's a ritual thing, it's to cover up her ugliness. So very early on, she's made to feel how ugly she is. So in Oriole, we, we have a young woman who is so self-conscious that she, she's not as good as the people around her. She's ugly. She doesn't have the beauty that other women have. And she has to bear that. Um, now let me, I just want to read a couple of passages and then, because um, we are late today, I want to stop in the next few minutes. I want to look just at a couple of passages. The first eight chapters go from the death of Oriol's mother, that's where it begins, to that chapter in which um, the priest comes to tell the king that, uh, that he had a meeting with the, the city people and together they decided, because of all the plagues and the bad harvest and the lack of rain and the drought and all the things that have happening, the loss of a male heir, that unless they make a sacrifice, things won't improve. And the king immediately assumes they want his life, and, and Oriol becomes more ashamed of him than she ever did in her life because she sees what a coward he is, that he would rather have somebody else die than offer his own life. But eventually the priest makes it clear that he didn't want the king's life he wanted. He wanted somebody who was better, pure, and that person is Psyche. If you know from the readings everything that happens, everything about Psyche is lovely. She's a beautiful creature. Um, in some sense you have to wonder if that isn't part of the reason that Oriole loves her, that she's not frowned on, that she can be in the presence of that beauty. And by the way, to go back to this thing about beauty again, there is a sense, particularly from what Fox tells Oriole, that beauty has this extraordinary power. When you're in the presence of beauty, you're in the presence of something whole. Remember, I, I'll, I'll, I'll read it next week. He has that line where he says, everything in nature was intended to perfection. All things have a telos. They're tending towards an end. But he says, some things happen to throw it off. Oriole is in that class. She was born ugly. Psyche wasn't. She, in Psyche, we have an image of, of something that was intended for everything in nature, but something wrong, something throws it off. Um, it begins with 
the um, mother's death and um, Fox is brought in to educate the, the male heir that doesn't come and Psyche's born instead. She's a beautiful creature. Her beauty has this wholeness and a power that people feel in the presence of it. So when she walked out in the city, people feel, felt healed just by being in her presence. So she goes out to heal people actively. When Oriole learns about it, she gets angry that she, that she would do that to, to put her life in risk. Shortly afterwards, bad things begin to happen. The plagues come, the drought comes, the animals come, the city's starving. The crowds begin to press on the gates. There, it looks like people are beginning to form for um, a revolution. They're going to overthrow the king. They're angry at him because he does not have a male heir. When one of the surrounding kingdom has, is it eight men, eight, eight sons? So everything points to an impotence. He's impotent. He's lacking something. There's something wrong with the kingdom. And the priest comes asking for a psyche. And when the king learns that, he's relieved and agrees to do it, and the preparations are made. So from book one to book eight, we're taken from um, the death of Oriole's mother to the point where um, they're going to make preparations to prepare Psyche to, to be sacrificed to the, the god of the mountain. That's book eight. I want to, I want, I want to look at that. When Oriole realizes that she's going to lose her sister, she goes to the tower where she's being kept prisoner. Bardia won't let her in, but finally she goes and gets a sword and threatens him, and he's so taken with her courage that he says, I'll let you see her for a few minutes. So when we finish today, we'll be on this edge. It's a good detective story. Oriole's fallen in love with Psyche and Fox. Fox is a wise man, a really good man. He loves Psyche. Psyche loves Fox. The three of them have this love between themselves that is really something totally different from everything else that's going on in the kingdom. But at this point, Psyche's going to be lost. And we're left at, at chapter 8 wondering what she will find because she says, I want to go bury the bones. I want to take something. I don't want to leave her there. So her concern is still for Psyche. We don't know what she's going to find. So after book 8, we're in a mystery detective story. We don't know what's going to be there. So that's where I want to stop. But I want to read a couple of passages before, before we leave. Turn to... Turn to page um, 18. Wait, wait, see, sorry. Yeah. Page 26 and 7, just to begin with. Fox has come into the picture, and he and Oriole and Psyche take walks in the garden and um, very often look at the distance of this mountain. And Psyche's a young girl. She's already educated by Fox, the myths that he, that he loves and won't admit how much he loves them. But, um, but she already has this sense that Lewis describes in his own life of having this longing of this something great, that there's something missing in our lives. All of us grow up as children with this sense of longing. There's something more there than seems to be. She feels that way towards the mountain at the bottom of 26. 
Psyche, almost from the beginning, for she was a very quick-thinking child, was half in love with a mountain. Now remember this mountain, because in Oriole's mind, that mountain is associated with everything grisly and horrible. Psyche looks at it in wonder. She made herself stories about it. When I'm big, she said, I will be a great, great queen, married to the greatest king of all, and he will build me a castle of gold and amber up there on the very top. Now hold on. She's just starting to learn stories, and she's already making herself a story as if that story were inherent, intrinsic, in every human being, that all of us have this longing for something. As a woman, her longing is to be married to a king on this mountain. The fox clapped his hand and said, he's happy, prettier than Andromache, prettier than Helen, prettier than Aphrodite herself. Speak words of better omen, grandfather, I said though I knew he would scold and mock me for saying it. For his words, though on that summer day, the rocks were too hot to touch, it was as if a soft, cold hand had been laid on my left side and I shivered. Bye-bye, said the fox. It's your words that are ill moved. The divine nature is not like that. It has no envy. But whatever he said, I knew it was not good to talk about that way about Unga. Just for a second. What... And if anybody's finished the book, I want you to just be quiet. But anybody who's not, when, when Oriol recalls that moment and she says, when she said, she imagines herself one day living on that mountain, the amber, the gold, she sees the beauty of it, married to this great king. And the fox claps and, and Oriol is... Um, something happens to her that she describes this way. It's, um, it's hot. She can't touch the stones. For at his words, though at that summer day the rocks were too hot to touch, it was as if a soft, cold hand had been laid on my left side and I shivered. What happens in that moment? What's going on with Oriole? Why does she respond that way? She has a moment of dread. The cold hand on her side. Dread of what? Dread for her sister, for Sanki, or dread of Ungit. The power of Angut. A premonition that something bad was going to happen. Anything else? <laughs> I've already read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Look at she's on edge. She could almost not contain herself. <laughs> Is it dread? Oh, I don't know. I don't want to hold on to this passage. Hold on to it. Just remember, because this is early on. What could have happened in, in, in Psyche's words that were produced a shiver? And notice it's on the left side. The left side indicating heart. the heart. Okay, just hold on to that. Go to the last, the chapter. Oh, wait, see if I can. Um, I'm not sure if it's, let me see if it's 46. I think it may be. No, it's 20, oh, it was on 24, and tw look at 24, and tw it's that same section, 24 and 25. 20, 25. Oriole knows this great joy from Psyche because of her beauty. Middle of 25, of Psyche's beauty at every age, the beauty proper to that age, there's only this to be said that there were no two opinions about it for man or woman once she had been seen. It was beauty that did not astonish you till afterwards when you'd gone out of sight. Stop and think about that. 
When you're in the presence of that beauty, it's almost as if you take life from it. It's life-giving. Come away from it, and it's different. And you feel you've missed something. It was beauty that did not astonish you afterwards when you had gone out of sight of her and reflected on it. While she was with you, you were not astonished. It seemed the most natural thing in the world. As the fox delighted to say, she was according to nature what every woman or every thing ought to have been and meant to be, but had missed by some trip of chance. But while you're in the presence of it, it's like health-giving because you're in the presence of some wholeness. You, you experience it. Go to the end now. I want to, I want to take a look at the... Um, Chapter 7, page 77. Just before this, remember, there's that long scene when the priest comes to tell the king that they have, they have to have a sacrifice. That Psyche was looked at as the most beautiful, and then the people turned on her and called her the curse. She was the source of the problem. And you know that Fox is going to argue. He says, how can it be both? He's, he's, he's using his mind. He's saying how fickle the people are. It can't be both. It can't, she can't be the, the most beloved and the source of healing and also be the cursed and the one that needs to get rid of because she's the cause of everything. But all of his, there, there, there are all these rational arguments. They're not getting close to something else. Okay. Page 77. Oriol enters the room expecting to comfort her sister because her sister's going to die. Now hold on to that shiver remark, okay? When Psyche said, one day I want to marry God. Middle of 77. Long before I could speak, she said, Sister, what have they done to you? Your face, your eye, he's been beating you again. And I realized somewhat slowly that all this time she'd been petting and comforting me as if I, as if, as if it were I who was the child and the victim. And this, even in the midst of the great anguish, made its own little eddy of pain. She's pained by that. Why? Hold on. It was so unlike the sort of love that used to be between us in our happy times. Go on over. She's embarrassed at what she did with her father. On page 78, she expresses her shame at her father. She's really angry at him. Psyche says, Oriol, she said, you make me think I've learned the fox's lessons better than you, because remember, she's much younger. Have you forgotten what we are to say to ourselves every morning? Today I shall meet cruel men, cowards and liars, the envious and the drunken, they will be like that because they do not know what's good from what's bad. This is an evil which has fallen upon them, not upon me. Think about it. That, that's so close to Christ's words. Be careful of the judgments we make. If we judge people by our standards, we may be missing something completely. Because she's saying, you, you don't know what they know is good or bad. We have no idea. They would be like that because they do not know what's good from what's bad. This is an evil which has fallen upon them, not me. They are to be pitied, not. She was speaking with a loving mimicry of the fox's voice. She could do this as well as Bada did it badly. Oh, child, how can? But I was choked again. What's going on with Oriole? Just hold on. Choked why? All she was saying seemed to me so light, so far away from our sorrow. I felt we ought not to be talking that way. Not now. What I thought it would be better to talk of, I did not know. Maya, said Psyche. You must make me a promise. She says, don't do anything rash with yourself, no matter how bad. Oh, your heart is of iron, I said. 
as for the king, give him my duty or whatever is proper. Bardi is a proper, she's looking at, she's saying, take care of other people. These, um, one would not seem rude or ignorant at the last, but I, cannot, I, I can send the king no other message. The man is a stranger to me. I know the henwife's wife, ba baby, better than him and for revival. Send her your curse. And if the dead can't, no, no, she also does what she doesn't know. Not even for you, Psyche, will I pity Redival, whatever the fox says. Would you like to be Redival? Would, be, would you like to be Redival? What? No. Then she's pitiable. If I am allowed to give my jewels as I please, you must keep all the things that you and I have really loved. Let her have all that's big and costly and doesn't matter. You and the fox take what you please. I could bear no more. Down. Um, only one thing, she said, there's a cold doubt, and it's at this point she begins to wonder whether she's always love is really true or not. So for a moment she has a doubt. And now she did weep, and now she was a child again. What could I do but fondle and weep with her? When Psyche needs consoling, Redival's happy. Aurium. Or, so, or Aurium's happy. She's ready to console her. When she's not, she talks about a pain, a sorrow, something wrong. But this is a great shame to write. There was now for me a kind of sweetness in our misery for the first time. This is what I had come to her in the prison to do. She recovered before I did. She raised her head, queen-like again, and said, But I'll not believe it. The priest has been with me. I never knew him before. He's not what the fox thinks. Do you know, sister, I've come to feel more and more that the fox hasn't the whole truth. Oh, he has much of it. It'd be dark as a dungeon within me, but for his teaching. And yet, I can't say it properly. He calls the whole world a city. This is that city image I wanted you to. The whole world a city. But what's a city built on? There's earth beneath and outside the wall. Doesn't all the food come from there as well as the dangers? Things growing and rotting, strengthening and poisoning. Things shining wet in one way. I don't know which way. More like, yes, even more like the house of... Angat, the thought of that shakes Oriol again. Yes, of Angat said I, doesn't the whole land smell of her? Do you, do you and I need to flatter gods anymore? They're tearing us apart. Um, go down. He was too good to believe that the gods are real and viler than the vilest men. Um, the fox was wrong. They're, um, they're horrible. Or else, said Psyche, they are real gods but don't really do these things. Or even mightn't it be they do these things, and the things are not what they seem to be. How am, I, how am I indeed, how if I am indeed to wed a god? Oriel becomes really angry, the thought that she would marry a god. This is one of those arguments. We don't have the time to go through, but you see the mind offering arguments, both sides right now, for the prospect of her doing that. 83. I see, said Psyche in a low voice, you think it devours the offering. I mostly think so myself. Anyway, it means death, Oriol. You didn't think I was such a child as not to know that. How can I be the ransom for all gloom unless I die? And if I'm to go to the God, of course it must be through death. That way, even what is strangest in the holy things might be true. To be eaten and to be marred, married to the God might not be so different. We don't understand. There must be so much that neither the prince nor the fox knows. Now hold on just for a second. Um, the fox helped 
Oriol and, and Psyche both learned from Plato, from Socrates, that death is our end and we can't be afraid to go to it. That it's better to die and suffer the wrongs of another person before we wrong a person ourselves. That's from Socrates. And that's a teaching that Fox taught both Oriol and Psyche. So long before this moment of the priest coming, Psyche's already been taught not to be afraid of dying. That in dying we go into something better. Oriol doesn't want her to die. And Psyche's saying here, but what if it's not the way we think it is? And then she said, if I'm to be an offering, how can I do it any other way than dying? Before we go on, the, the image of devouring, that a god is going to devour us. The centerpiece of the divine comedy in the inferno, when Donnie got to the bottom of hell, hell was what? It was Ugolino feasting on Rogerio, feasting, and Satan feasting on Brutus, Cassius, and Judas. Why is that image so important as a defining image of hell and heaven? Because what's the opposite of that? <coughs> the Eucharist. God feeding. So at the center of our faith is devouring. And we're supposed to be offering ourselves, we are supposed to be offering ourselves as bread and wine for the life of another. At the heart of our faith is this image of what outside people call cannibalism. Because on the surface, that's what it looks like. So here buried in this imagery is this terror of death for Oriol and something in Psyche that is preparing herself for it, even in the aspect of devouring. What are the ironies? Take a look at the Eucharist. Take a look at Dante's hell. What's the opposite of offering yourself as food to another? Using others as objects for ourselves. Father's homily. Our self-love is so great that the tendency in ourselves is to use others to satisfy our own self-love. Okay. Go down a little bit. 83. As for death, she said, why, Barty, you there. I love Barty. We'll look on it six times a day and whistle a tune as he goes to find it. We have made little use of the fox's teaching if we're to be scared by death, she says. Oreo's response, go down. Oh, cruel, cruel, I wail. It is nothing to you that you leave me here alone. Psyche, did you ever love me at all? Next page. Love you, why, Maya, would have I ever had to love except you? And then she says, what does she have to look forward here to? And she names all the things that will disillusion any person living in this world. I should have been given to some king in the end, some man, not her choosing. Perhaps such another is our father. It could have been a man like him. And there you can see again how little difference there is between dying and being married. One of C.S. Lewis's famous things, when you marry, you enter a death. Either you're giving up your life for another or you're not. When you have a child as a parent, you're either dying because you're giving up your life or you're getting possessive and doing what you do for yourself. Maya, the fox, to leave your home, to lose you, Maya and the fox, is to lose one's maidenhead, to bear a child. They are all deaths. Indeed, indeed, Oriole, I'm not sure that this which I go to is not the best. There's this description on the next page, in the middle of the page, when Psyche once again is describing the mountain. Do you remember? 
page 85, the color and the smell, the looking across the gray mountain in the distance, and because it was so beautiful, it set me longing, always longing somewhere else there must be more. If there's something more and it's better, why would we be afraid? What should we be doing with our lives every moment of every day? Because it was so beautiful, it set me longing, always longing somewhere else. There must be more of it. Everything seemed to be saying, psyche, come, come. What are the last words of the Bible? Revelations, come, come, come. It's the last words in Revelation, it's Christ calling for the bride, come, come. Psyche, come, but I couldn't come, and I didn't know where I was to come to. It almost hurt me. I felt like a bird in a cage when the other birds of its kinds are flying home. She has been waiting for this moment to free her from this world. Um, all of these things are making Oriole angrier and angrier. Um, I, at the top of 86, I grudged her the courage and comfort. It's as if something or something else had come between us. If this grudging is the sin for which the gods hate me, it is one I have committed. Um, um, Oreo, she says, I'm going, you see, to the mountain. The greatest king of all was going to build it for me. If only you could believe it, sister. No, listen. Do not let grief shut up your ears and harden your heart. Is it my heart that's hardened? Now she's beginning to blame her. It's her heart. So she's blaming. She's not only angry at her, she's blaming her. Um, and it's at this point that they, I mean, almost for a moment become enemies. It, it will happen, but um, at the top of 87, my country, the place where I ought to have been born, do you think it all meant nothing? All the longing, the longing for home, for indeed it now feels not like going, but like going back. All my life, the God of the mountain has been wooing me. Oh, look up, look at least before the end, and wish me joy. I'm going to my lover. Do you not see now? I only see that you never loved me, she said. It may, it may be well you are going to the gods. You are becoming cruel like them. So she's blaming her again. Now let me just stop for a second. Um, I know we didn't do enough in the text, but we did enough. Characterize Oriol here. Selfish. Selfish. Jealous. Huh? Jealous. Jealous. Why? For several reasons. It's like she she loves the girl she really does. Who's love? Wait, who? Uh, Orwell truly loves Psyche. Psyche. But um, she loves her totally. Like she's jealous when she brought the fox into the picture with her. You know, like why don't you just love me alone? Aren't I good enough for you? And no, she's you know, not Anybody else? No. Father's homily today, I don't know if any of you see the relevance of it here, but he was talking about God is calling us to love him more than anything. And the difficulty of that daily because we tend to love ourselves more than God. And he knows as well as anybody the problems that come when that happens. Because if that's what we carry into what we do all day, then we're not bringing love to the world, we're bringing something else. What the opening, I mean, what we're being shown here in the opening is, um, this is the Cupid Psyche myth, but in some way, um, um, Lewis is showing something that I believe to be at the soul of every human being. 
you call it concupiscence or self-love. It's possessive love. It's, it's the way in which we get possessive of the things that we want or the, the, possi- the, possess- the possessive form that our love takes when we make ourselves more important than anybody else. And the effect of that on our relationship. The self-pity, the, the anger, and, there, and I hope you, there's a difference between a good anger and a bad, but getting angry for the wrong reason because what's at stake is what's for you and the blaming. So that already, in just these opening scenes, we're seeing what happens in what, in what a person takes to be the love of another person. Because I hope it's clear, Oriol has no sense that there's anything wrong. She loves Psyche. She's been um, hurt. She's been wounded. She wants to love. She's longing for a love. Um, she loves her truly. She's been the joy of her life. You cannot deny that. But we're seeing what happens um, when that love is left to itself. Now, what's going to happen to it? We have to wait and see. But I that's where we are. Sure. What, what, what is the point of Redivelle? We haven't talked at all about her. What part does she play in all this? She's like a foil or something. Does anybody want to take a... I'll come back to that next week. I want to... Um, anybody quickly? I'll, I'll, I'm going to do a couple diagrams when we meet next week that'll help. But, but it, a foil is a good word. I mean, she's a contrast. Does, does Redival love anybody besides herself? What does she live for? If you look at the platonic scheme, we've done this before, I'll do it next week. Reason, um, spiritedness, anger, and the appetites. What does she live for? Appetites. I mean, she, she, she is an image of, and, and in some ways she's actually an image of something in, in um, Oriole, even though Oriole doesn't see it. She's living to satisfy her. She's a silly girl, a foolish girl. She hasn't been educated well. Fox is beginning to talk, teach her, but she's already old. Um, and we know what happens. She, she has sex with Taryn because she, she's vain. She just, she, she's off having sex. The father castrates him. He's gone. So she's an image of what can happen in a girl when she's left at the mercy of her appetites. And remember Psyche's words. <clears throat> her response is, I can't remember that line, but I read it, but she said, I would pity her. <coughs> she doesn't know who's helped her to see. <coughs> when Fox comes into the picture, Redival's already, you know, well on her way, the vanity of a girl because of her beauty. Later, we'll see that there's a, a prince that's going to come here and is going to be attracted by her beauty. How many men get attracted to a woman because of their beauty without having any sense of what's going on in the soul of that woman? She's absolutely selfish. Um, she's, she's an image, she's a foil, she's also an image, I think, of something in Oriole, in the same way that Psyche is, if we're looking at the, the human soul. But anyway, let's leave it there. Next week, hold on, here's next week, next eight chapters, Oriole's going to go to the mountain with the, with the idea of healing her or capturing her or taking her bones and burying her. What's she going to find when she goes to the mountain? And hold on, hold on. Up to this point, we, we're, we're, we're experiencing a young girl who's been deeply wounded, who's ugly, who's not been loved, except by a man who's not her father, and whose love of her life has just left her. 
psyche. It's like, and sometimes I imagine sisters going through this, when one of the sisters get married, and the attachments they feel, and, and you have to let go of this sister that you love who's gonna marry a man, Can you, of all things, a man. Um, there's something of that in what's going on here. She's gonna go off and marry this man. And um, she's wounded and hurt, um, angry at, at Psyche, but she loves her enough to want to go do something for her, even if she's dead. What's she going to find, and what's her response going to be to what she finds? That's where we're going next. Thank you. We don't like you guys. We don't usually applaud. I'd be glad if you didn't. The word which? The foil. But out. Wait, are we are we giving you a ride? No, she doesn't. Oh no? Are you okay? I'm good. Don's lady. Okay. There, there was a lady in January in the Monday night meeting who lent me a book. And I wanted to return it to her. But um, if you take Do you know her name? No. I only went that once, I didn't know anybody. But if you just ask who lent this okay. book. I mean, she said she had two and she didn't care, but I, okay. I, I just want to give okay. it back. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. So I had a couple thoughts on this. You got more than a couple thoughts. I did. I did. I did. So when you were talking about the little kid, oh, and I you forgot. Were, and you I were ex- that. Yeah, and you were. But you I were, gave this out for people just so um, you have something to think about it in that opening. Of, but anyway, sorry. No, no, no. I, I just thinking you were you were struggling with the words and um, and I was thinking it's just that whole God time that the, it's the, the unity of past, present, and future and the flow of past, present, and future. And then when it came over here, you know, and I've never read this before, but of course this leads you to prayer. What, what do you kneel before? You kneel before the Eucharist and. And it's coming here. It is the, the, the communication of the communion of the dead tongue with fire and yes. spirit. And there is like when you when you receive Christ, it's not only the union uh, with the Trinity at the time, and but it's the union with the dead. You know how and, and, then, and then that whole past, present, and future. You're in it all. Like it was just very beautiful how he. When we start next week, I'm going to ask you to take just a minute and you can just say that there. Love it. And then one other thing you say, you say coincidence and how, uh, you know, Snopes were talking about, I've never read that either, but you were talking about, um, you know, uh, how you can't, you can no longer say it's coincidence, you know, and I don't know if you've heard the saying, there's no such thing as coincidence in Providence. I think, Have you heard I, that wait, saying? hold on, because I don't, I, I get wary, get nervous, particularly religious people, Catholic God Protestants, you too easily say God did this. Because hold on, just hold on, hold on. We, ah, God, the church would say, the church would say, there are two orders of, if you put it that way, one is of um, first causes, 
and the others of secondary causes. Mm -hmm. We live in a world of secondary causes that is in a contingent world where there are freedoms and, mm -hmm. and so coincidences can occur in that world. Mm -hmm. But when they start adding up, because God doesn't intervene in everything. I, right. I, he's, he's present always. But opening doors and, and doing things to help, he's always there. But we, we live in a world in which chance and coincidences are real things. Mm. Aristotle would say that. Mm. St. Thomas would say that. Mm. The church would say that. Because if you take those freedoms away, you're in a Protestant world where everything is either mm. depraved or done. Mm. It's all... It's all mm. God is a God, ex, he's a deus ex machina. He controls everything. We don't believe that. We believe that he's protective of our freedoms. It but makes everything we do much more of an adventure yeah, and more meaningful. That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't, yeah, you're right. I didn't think about that. And I was, I, I was also thinking that when you were talking about the, the grief observed, um, uh, that she was uh, daughter and mother. And I, I thought bring that instantly answer. of... Who, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Who are the, it is oh, yeah, 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 Like, yeah, I was yeah, just yeah, so yes, drawn yes, to that. Yes, yeah. Yes. And I don't know what was... I, I've been doing this... Stop! Hold off this and bring some of this well, up. Well, I've been me. doing this reflection. Do you, I don't know, those little pamphlets that you get during Lent. You ever mm -hmm. see those mm -hmm. where it's a daily reflection? Yeah. I'm doing one on uh, Nurer, Nurier. He's a... You would know who it is. He did a reflection on the prodigal son. The, actually, it was like the painting of the prodigal son, and he, that's what got him thinking of the prodigal son. And um, you were talking about identifying with the good, you know, the good, n not just the good, but the good and the evil, finding yourself in both. Mm -hmm. That's so prodigal son. You know, we're in every, we're supposed to be, you know, yes. you know or we are, yes. unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good stuff, Bob, good stuff. Thank you. You gonna stick it out? Oh, yeah. Well, oh. I mean, let's back, you know, I have. <laughs> I'll have my commitment in there, but I actually didn't start until around 10.30. So, <laughs> 10.30? Yeah, actually talking about Cupid. You <laughs> didn't bring Psyche God. until 10.30. God. So I'm like, okay, I can, I can... There were too many new people today to... I love it. Jump. Oh, no, I'm, I'm one of those, and I'm grateful for it. So, thank you. A lot of fun. Good things.